0: So um, if you're, you're a visitor with us, we are doing a whole year in Mark's Gospel. So we are taking, we usually do short series, um, serieses, uh, but at the moment we're taking our time. We want to take our time and, and dwell on, on, on a bit more of the stories and, and, uh, and find out a bit more about Jesus and uh, what it means to be in the kingdom. So today's, if you've got a Bible, today is, uh, we're in Mark chapter 9. And we're going to be taking up the story from verse 14 up to 32. So again, another little short passage. So it's Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32. So the context, what's the context of the story? So if you were with us last week, or if you just know Matt's gospel quite well, um, this is following on immediately from what, what people have known as the transfiguration. This amazing account of when Jesus takes three disciples, not sure why those three, but Peter, James, and John. They all go up a mountain, and uh, Jesus is transformed in front of them. He's transformed, he's glowing in white, whiter than any anybody can bleach his clothes, it says, Mark writes. And uh, they have this amazing, they see Jesus in a completely new way. They see him glorified. They see him as we will see him one day. And not only that, but then two other, the spirits of two other um, prophets, come as well we've got Elijah and Moses who come and they're dazzling white as well and Peter and the guys don't know what to do with themselves they're they're trembling in amazement and then we hear the voice as I alluded to this morning that God says this is my son with whom I will please listen to him And so we have this parallel with with Jesus' baptism when God says the same thing. And similarly, after following Jesus' baptism, he was then taken, wasn't he, to the desert. He was led by the Spirit, it says in Mark's Gospel, which we've read earlier, to the desert to be tempted. And in a similar way, there's parallels with this story that Jesus has been in this mountaintop experience. And as he comes down the mountain, he once again encounters a demon. demon. Um, So you've got this mountaintop experience this, you know, this incredible once in a lifetime experience with three of the disciples. And then they come down the mountain and there's chaos and there's a demon and there's opposition. So that's the sort of context. And why did Mark write it? Well, some people think that, that, that well, obviously he's writing it because, he, because it was true, but also the reason that this is so significant uh, in the life of the early church, it was, uh, we think it was written mainly for the people that would have first heard it were people in Rome. And at that time, obviously Jesus wasn't there with them he wasn't there in person, and they felt powerless, and they felt defeated, and they felt it discouraged. Uh, and it was about a crisis of faith, really. And this whole story is about what do you do when Jesus isn't around, and what role does faith play in that? And obviously, for us, therefore, there's quite a lot to draw out. So let's read the passage together. So it's Mark chapter 9, from verse 14. I asked your disciples to drive him out, but I drive the spirit out, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything's possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Okay so this is a fascinating little encounter I think and there's a lot of a lot of things a lot of areas you could go into uh, when you're speaking about this and there's definitely a couple of fridge magnet type quotes within this uh, which we'll come on to so Jesus comes down the mountain and uh, with the three disciples so they, and encounters this scene of complete and utter disarray you've got um, you've got all the you've got the nine disciples and they're arguing With other teachers of the law, you've got this this father, this desperate father who brings a boy to the the disciples and says, can you drive it? This has got a demon. Can you drive it out? And the disciples, for some reason, can't. And we're going to explore that a little bit together. You've got a crowd that's there and it's complete chaos. And Jesus can barely hide his frustration at the situation. So... It's interesting, I think, as well, that if you ever wondered, the teachers of the law are always there. They always seem to be there in these stories, don't they? And this one, this is the first time where they're arguing. And you've got to wonder, why are they there? Are they really looking to see if, if Jesus really is the Messiah? And this is, really is the, ones they've been, the one they've been waiting for. Or are they there for another reason? It's probably likely that the Sanhedrin, which is like the ruling, the ruling religious council in Jerusalem, were sending people to spy on Jesus and his disciples to find out what he was saying. Because they'd already come into encounters with him where they'd said, well, actually, we think that you're blaspheming. We, we're not, we don't agree with you on the matters of the law. It's quite likely, I think, that, that they were sending people to come and to find out what, what else he was saying. What other you know, crazy things Jesus was going to come out with next? Um, and that's probably highlighted by the fact that they were arguing with the disciples. And that was, what, that was the first thing Jesus comes to see. So as soon as the people saw him, it's amazing that, say they were overwhelmed with astonishment. Why were they overwhelmed with astonishment? Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus just literally rocked up and they were overwhelmed with wonder and astonishment. And it just got me thinking that, you know, Jesus up to this point in his his life, up to 30 years old, had not really been that much to to mark him out as something special, had they? He'd been this boy, this this sort of local boy, uh, son of a carpenter, probably learnt the family trade. Nobody thought he was anything special really. And then suddenly within you know, a period of about three years, his reputation's completely transformed to the extent that crowds are coming to every, every time he goes somewhere new, he cannot get peace because crowds come in and people are overwhelmed with wonder. And it got me thinking: Why, why were they overwhelmed with this, this, uh, with astonishment? Jesus hadn't done anything. He just literally came down the mountain. And I thought it was similar to when before. Before I was, I was a Christian, Jesus was just sort of this sort of reasonably insignificant historical figure, and you know, and uh, very worst, he was a you know, he was a sort of a, a cursory curse word that I used when you know when I stubbed my toe. Um, but when it became a Christian, it was like every my perspective completely changed. I, I started to when I heard the word Jesus, i my ears pricked up, and I'm thinking, oh, what's they're talking about Jesus, or something on a documentary, or on the radio, and I'm and I'm and I'm absolutely eager to hear more. And I'm, it's like I'm, I can't get enough of this Jesus. And and I think some people were like that. They they saw Jesus and they they were like, oh, he's to hear again. Um, he's, he's, they were just attracted to him. So um, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down the mountain, and they see. They see all this arguing. The disciples are faced with this boy with what they call a dumb spirit. Now it's interesting that some some versions of the Bible and some commentators, their title, the subtitle they give to this is the boy with epilepsy. So it's interesting because the because the symptoms are so similar to what we now know as epilepsy. Some people think actually probably was epi- epilepsy, but they couldn't they didn't know what epilepsy was because it hadn't been the word hadn't even been invented back then. Um, however, there are some good reasons to believe that. He may have had that, but there are also many reasons to believe that actually it wasn't epilepsy. The first is that, that Mark clearly attributes this to the demonic. Now, if you, if you don't believe in the demonic, then clearly you're going to want to look for an, a different uh, you know, explanation. You're going to want to look for something more scientific or natural. But actually, clearly as Christians, if we really believe in God, we've got to believe in the devil. And all through, this, this, uh, all through this, the Mark's gospel, you've got these encounters with the demonic. Secondly, Mark doesn't attribute everything to the demonic, does he? He doesn't say everything that is bad that's happened in people's lives is demonic. I know some Christians do that, but uh, Mark doesn't do that. Sometimes he said this boy was just, you know, blind from this guy was blind from birth. Um, He doesn't say anything about the demon. Jesus heals people that that are just ill or they've got conditions, and lots of those things, conditions, were not attributed to the demonic. However, he clearly states this one is. So we we can be reasonably clear, this isn't just some kind of primitive uh, way of trying to describe something we know as a medical condition now. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised, should we, really, that when, I don't know about you, but when you've had a mountaintop, inverted commas, experience, when you've had a great time of worship, or you've, you've read the Bible and God's really spoken to you, or you've been at a prayer meeting, or somebody's prayed with you and you felt God really touch you, how many times do you come out and you get massively challenged with some absolute, confrontation. Yeah? Some people are smiling. I mean, it could just be an argument with somebody. It could be something completely natural, but it's always there, isn't it? You have this up experience and then suddenly back down to earth. Wow, this is life again. I'm having an argument with my boss or my wife or my husband or your friend or whatever. But sometimes you can clearly feel that it's almost like there is somebody or something trying to stop and trying to derail you. We have, I, have, I often have this, particularly with Alpha, I don't know if it's because you're just hypersensitive when, you, when you're planning Alpha and stuff, but I often think that when you, when you invite people to Alpha and they say yes, often everything goes wrong to stop that person coming. It's, seemingly, everything that could go wrong goes wrong. It hadn't gone wrong you know, up to that point in the, in the week, but suddenly there's all these opposing forces trying to stop, and I think, you know, you can over spiritualize things, but there's definitely... There's definitely forces at work that are trying to derail what God is doing. And as Christians, we have to believe that, don't we? That, that there is, God is good and God is the most powerful, but there's also spiritual forces at work. And this is what Mark was saying. Every time Jesus is there showing the kingdom, there's another kingdom at work here. And there's somebody else trying to say, no, this isn't, this isn't don't look this way, look somewhere else. So, so we have these characters and, and uh, the father then becomes the main character in the story. And he's, he comes to Jesus and says, I asked your disciples to, di- to drive this, this demon out, but they couldn't do it. Now, the disciples had every reason to believe they could do this, didn't they? Because they'd done this before. So in chapter 6, we've read already that Jesus sends them out on a mission and they cast out demons, they heal the sick, and they proclaim the message of God. They'd done this before, but for some reason, this time they couldn't do it. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute and uh, we'll see if we can you know, think of some solutions or some, some reasons why. But Jesus, then we have this interplay between Jesus and the Father. Now, Jesus um, does more than just fix a situation. You would have thought, if Jesus was just a, a miracle worker, he would have just said, Right, great, you, you're gone, impure spirit gone, right, who's next? You know, like, kind of like a you know, televangelist. Um, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus enters into a conversation with him, doesn't he? In fact, he asks him a question that seems completely irrelevant. He says, How long has the boy been like this? Why is that relevant? To Jesus, Jesus' power to change the situation had nothing is not inhibited by how long somebody's had a condition. It makes no difference. They could have had it all their life. It could have been five minutes. It makes no difference. So why is Jesus asking this question? And all I can think of is that Jesus is, is trying to enter into relationship with people all the time, isn't he? he 's not just trying to be some efficient efficient healing machine uh, that goes around and just waves magic wands over people 's lives he 's actually trying to enter into relationship with people and he 's trying to find out more about them he 's trying to find out their motives he 's trying to he 's trying to relate to them and uh, he shows compassion to the father and jesus uh, the father 's desperation is 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 evident in this story isn't it? he 's absolutely desperate and you would be wouldn 't you your son or your daughter your child has got this condition this thing that's happening to him that even you know that they, they fear for the life it throws him into a fire he's tried to you know he throws him into the water he's he's almost drowned he's almost burnt to death uh, and he's convulsing at the mouth he becomes rigid um, you would be desperate and if you couldn't get a doctor to do anything about it you'd be absolutely desperate so he's heard jesus can do stuff and he's he's struggling he's struggling with faith and he says if you can do anything take pity on us like, please just, just pity me. I'm absolutely desperate. I'm at my wit's end here. And it's interesting. Jesus says, if you can. It's almost like, do you know who I am? If you can. Of course. And Jesus says this next bit, which has become a kind of fridge magnet theology, which says, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, I think this, this quote bears spending a little bit of time on, because if you get it wrong, people have built whole theologies on quotes like this, and live their whole lives as if, you know, and you've got to, if you get it wrong, you can really, you know, really get, make some mistakes. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying, A, I, Jesus, can do anything because the, the amount or quality of my faith, i.e., I believe so much that everything's possible. Is he saying that? Or is he saying, anyone can do anything if they have enough faith so the emphasis therefore being on the amount of faith you have and actually sort of even in sort of non-christian circles now there's a, this sort of philosophy is quite is quite prevalent isn't it you basically you can do anything if you believe in yourself you can do anything and and there is some truth in the fact that if you do believe that you can do something you're more likely to be able to, to accomplish it but not anybody can do anything just if they believe it because clearly that doesn't bear with reality does it is Jesus saying, anybody can do anything. All you need to do is have enough faith. Now, some Christians would say that that, that is a true, true doctrine. That actually, it's all about the amount of faith you have. And if something doesn't happen, clearly, you didn't have enough faith. I've got to say, I struggle with that. I really do struggle with that. that, that because then it becomes back to you and says, basically, it's about you. It's about how much faith you have. And actually, I just don't believe that that's true. I really don't. So is he saying, anything is possible if one has faith in the one who can do anything? And I think this is much more likely. So the emphasis is on, on who we put our faith in. So everything possible if you believe in God, because God can do anything. Does he mean he will do everything when you ask him? Of course not. That doesn't bear with reality. But Jesus, I think Jesus is saying, anything is possible when you believe in God, because God can do anything. I think that is what he's saying. Now, I might be wrong. Clearly, you come to your own conclusions on that one. He might mean something else. Um, but they were the sort of three things I was wrestling with. What is Jesus saying here? Um, so I think it is about about who we have our faith in. And I've, I read this quote by a theologian I'd never heard of, somebody called W. Grundman. It's always interesting. Theologians always have, like, letters rather than names. Like, just tell me your name. Like, I don't know what W stands for. Anyway, could have been Wally or Walter or who knows? Anybody know him? W. Grundman? Wayne? Is it? Wayne Grundman. All right, okay then. Um... I know Wayne Gruden, but I don't know about Grundmann, but anyway, maybe it is. So he, he wrote this Faith is the assertion of a possibility against all probabilities, in spite of any contrary indi- indication provided by our experience of life or the realities of world of the world, and in constant battle against temptation. What is it that differentiates this faith from mere illusion, i.e., anybody can do anything? Um, which breaks down upon the hard rock of reality. It is not a faith which reaches vaguely into the void, but one that firmly trusts in Jesus Christ. Such a faith has nothing else than Jesus Christ in the middle of a world which scoffs at all our hopes and fears. It fastens on to Jesus Christ with all the strength at its command. And if the demonic power of the storm becomes overpowering, then the last resource of a man's nature give vent to the cry, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Now it's quite wordy that, but essentially he's saying it's not some kind of vague. Belief that I can do anything as long as I have enough faith, or you know, it doesn't really matter as long as you just really, just really muster up enough faith. He's saying it's all about the faith where you've put your faith in, isn't it? It's all about the person that you trust in. And Jesus is saying, "I am. If you can, yes, I'm the Messiah. Of course, I can. It's all about putting faith in me. He put his faith in the disciples, and they couldn't do it. But they put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus did it. I love the Father's response here, which is another fridge magnet. Um, But it is is one of the most honest quotes, I think, in Scripture. And it completely resonates with me. I do believe, he says the Father, help me overcome my unbelief. And in that, in those few words, I just think it says so much. I don't know about you, but how many times have you felt like that when you pray? (laughs) Um, I do believe God. I do believe in you, but I'm really struggling to believe right now. Because all of the opposing forces that are against me, everything seems to be saying the opposite. I do believe, but I'm, everything seems to be saying the opposite of what I believe. Or, I know you can do this because you are God who can do anything. But I also know you might not. Because I've been here before. I mean, I've had faith to move mountains before. I've prayed over dead people and they've not been raised from the dead. I, and it, you can't tell me I didn't have faith at those moments. I'd have absolute faith. Absolute faith. I've prayed for people to get healed and they haven't got healed. I had absolute faith, every faith that they were going to get healed, not even a moment doubt, and it didn't happen. Now, does that mean that God doesn't do it? Of course not. But it does mean that there is the reality of our prayer life is that sometimes we don't get what we pray for. In fact, a lot of the time we don't get what we pray for. God is outside of time, isn't he? He doesn't see time in a linear fashion like we do. He's outside of it. He can see the end and the beginning at the same time. He understands that every prayer that we pray... He knows the answer to them. He knows the, 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 the way it will affect different people and communities and nations. He doesn't, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says not yet. And we don't always know the reason why. But this guy, is, he's wrestling, he's desperate. He says, I do believe, but I'm really struggling. Help me to overcome my belief. And I think this is the thing that Neil said at Easter, that doubt isn't the, the enemy of faith. Doubt and faith, I believe, can coexist at the same time. And actually, some would say, and Neil said this at Easter in his sermon as well, that if you haven't doubted, have you really believed? Because how have you wrestled with, with what it means to believe if you haven't doubted that that belief, even that the person that there is to even wrestle with, to even to believe in? Um, and I think doubt is, whilst nobody wants it, nobody wants it in their life. And it's a, it's a destabilizing feeling. Actually, it forces you to then reconsider what you really believe. And do I really trust? I've said this before, but for years, every time it comes to Easter, I doubt the resurrection. For years, and didn't happen so much this year, but for many years, every time I got to Easter, I said, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I doubt in it. I'm doubting it. And I come out the other end and think, yeah, I look at the evidence again. I look at it afresh. I look at the things he's done in my life. And I say, yes, how can I, how can I doubt? I do believe. I've overcome that, that unbelief. But it doesn't mean I don't doubt from time to time. And this, I, I just love that. And I think it's just such an honest, honest assessment of faith. And I was thinking about faith being like a muscle. I am, as you can probably tell, uh, in training at the moment, trying to bulk up, get buffed for my holidays, which obviously it's working. Um, but when you're a skinny person like me, um, you know, it, it, it's not going to happen overnight, is it? It's not one of those things. It's, to get muscle, you have to experience resistance. It's all about resistance, isn't it? If it's easy, if you lift in puny little weights like I do, then nothing's going to happen because you're not, your muscles are not experiencing any resistance. They have to be resisted. They have to tear in order to then build up again. And I believe that's good, not a bad analogy for faith, really, is it? That Actually, faith has to experience resistance if, it has, if, it's, going to, if it's going to grow. And it's by regular prayer and discipline. It doesn't happen overnight. You can be a Christian a long time. You can still grow in your faith, can't you? Wherever you're at this morning you can still grow in trust in God. That doesn't mean you'll never doubt. And if you never doubt, then praise God, you never doubt, but you, I'm not in that camp. But it doesn't matter because they can coexist. As long as you come out the other side and God, help me in my unbelief. Yes, I do believe. Um, then then that's, that's, that's fine. We're on a journey, aren't we? Then the crowd starts to gather. Anyway, in the story... And Jesus sees that there's a more of a crowd running to the, spe- to the scene. This is probably likely more people than there were there originally. So there were a crowd there. It was a crowd there already. And then more people run to the scene. And Jesus is like, right, we really need to get this done now. Because now there's a massive scene building up. And as Jesus, in characteristic fashion, doesn't want to attract too much attention to himself. He rebukes the, the, the impure spirit. And uh, he comes a twist in the plot. Another faith challenger. The boy looks like he's dead. The boy looks like a corpse. everybody said like, he's dead. He got worse. My father-in-law used to joke that he never prayed for people because it always got worse when he prayed for them. And he, and he, but he was like, yeah, they always seem to get worse when I pray. Like, nobody ever seems to get better. They always seem to get worse. So I'm just going to stop praying now. But obviously in this situation where faith was in crisis and people were, the onlookers were argumentative and critical, this was another little twist in that. There's another way of saying, this is a funny this is a funny situation. This isn't going to happen. And the boy looks dead. But, um, you know, like often happens in our lives, some things get worse and then they get better. Well, Jesus takes the boy by the hand and brings the boy back. And perhaps symbolically raises another child back from the dead. The following verse then jumps, this is the last bit of the story, the, the verse really jumps then from the boy's restoration to Jesus being indoors somewhere. We don't know what whose house it was, but it says... Privately, after Jesus had gone indoors, verse 28, the disciples asked him, Why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive this, this demon out? Which would be the, a logical question if you'd done this before and it wasn't working. So, this is the third time in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus having a private discussion with the disciples indoors following their lack of understanding surrounding an event. So, they are on a journey, aren't they? The disciples have only been with him a short time, they're still learning always. Um, And despite Jesus' obvious frustration where he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? Which sounds quite harsh, uh, I've got to say, but he must have been pretty miffed. Um, Then Jesus at this point then shows patience and his commitment to them. He takes them indoors and he says, okay, let's, let's talk about why this didn't happen. Now, Jesus' response is puzzling, I think, to say the least. This one only comes out by prayer. Now some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. If you look at the footnotes in your Bible, um, but most Bible, most Bible com, um, translators have stuck with prayer, and that's a footnote. Some commentators think the fasting bit was never was never said by Jesus, but was actually reflected more the early practice of the early church, where fasting had become a traditional uh, you know discipline, and that uh, they were they put that on afterwards. Who knows but obviously the, the translators of the bible don't think it's significantly because in later manuscripts for it to, to be in there so it's an, as a footnote so if if he did say this only comes out by prayer what on earth were they trying to do <laughs> well, if they didn't pray how were they going to drive a demon out what were they doing were they just thinking right i think what we'll do is well, you know you get him in a headlock and you know i don't know who what did they what were they doing like what were the disciples doing trying to get a, a, a demon out without prayer one commentator says, um, in typical fashion, he says, um, when faced with a crisis, all the disciples could do was talk and argue. It's like, well, actually, there's some parallels to our lives there, isn't there? I'm a, I'm a sort of doer person. I like to get things done. And uh, Neil's, I know Neil's the same. When we get together, he's like, right, well, how can we solve this situation? Let's just get it done. Dun, 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 and let's, let's make things. We're men of action. Let's do this. Maybe skinny, but we're men of action. Um, and, uh, and we just want to solve things. And then you comes and you think, hmm, perhaps we should pray about this. You know, prayer always seems to be like the last resort sometimes, doesn't it? You're like, actually, maybe if we prayed first, asked for God's perspective, ask for some discernment, maybe we would we do this better. And perhaps that was what was happening. But I, I've got to say, I think I think the disciples probably did pray. Why would they how how else would they have tried to cast out a demon? I don't know. So if they did pray, why did it not work? And that's the obvious question next, isn't it? So the answer is we don't know. That's the short answer. Nobody can tell you for definite. And Jesus doesn't say. And it's one of those frustrating bits in the Bible where Jesus doesn't elaborate and you really wish he did. Um, but he doesn't. He just, this one just comes out by prayer. Oh, right. OK. We didn't think of that, Jesus. Um, but actually, why? So if they pray, why didn't it work? So one of the thoughts I had was was it complacency? Had they allowed uh, complacency in the dictionary, uh, the definition dictionary, a definition says, showing smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. Perhaps they'd become a little bit arrogant. Maybe they thought, oh, we've done this before, we can do this, we can cast out demons left, right and centre, we can heal people, we can, you know, maybe they'd start to think, yeah, we, we can do this, we're the men, yeah, we've got it, you know, maybe they did. Maybe Jesus isn't here, it doesn't matter because we did it without Jesus last time, we went on a mission and we did it and, you know, perhaps, and that can be True for us, can't it? We can become complacent in our in our prayer lives. We can think, oh, it doesn't really matter. I don't really need to pray because I just know what I'm doing. And you can fall into those, those patterns. Perhaps that is, we don't know. Perhaps it becomes superstitious. So perhaps they'd sort of trusted in some kind of arbitrary formula. They'd done it before, and Jesus had used certain words, and maybe they'd they thought. Oh, well, actually, if we just do it this way and say these words. And I know there are Christians who would say that. If you just, this is the sort of prayer you have to pray for this type of thing. And this is the sort of prayer you have to pray for this type of thing. And, and you, before you know it, it's like the words themselves have some kind of power in themselves. And clearly they don't. Jesus is the one who has the power, but not, not some pattern of behavior or mantra. I mean, you're getting into sort of other religions where mantras are, you know. And even, even in non-religious um, settings, people have these superstitions, don't they? so they cross fingers oh I'll cross my fingers for you or touch wood touch the wood and then they go touch it. It's like what a ridiculous thing that is that like, as if that is going to do anything You're like touching wood you don't even, you don't even believe that anyway it's just like some kind of superstitious like if i don't do it then maybe i'll never know whether that made a difference or not is that we still have we still hold on to these superstitious ways and that can creep into our into our lives as Christians as well, we can start to, I found myself doing it thinking, right, on a, when I'm driving home on a, on a night and on a Tuesday night, we have Kids Club here and I always think, right, if I don't pray for Kids Club tonight, it's not going to go as well, so let's pray. It's like, what's my motivation for praying? It's actually, I better to pray because if I don't pray, something might happen. Or I better pray for my kids every day because if I don't pray every day, then something might happen to them at school. It's like, that's not why you pray. I mean, it's not a bad thing to pray for all those things, but what's my motivation? Is it because I just think, Here's a list of things I need to get through. It's like a superstitious thing. You almost don't need God at all. You can just just say the words out. Maybe they'll have power in themselves. Perhaps that that happened. Maybe this arguing with the with the teachers of the law was significant. Maybe maybe they're arguing with one another. We we already know in the in the gospel that they they've become competitive about who's the best. You know, <laughs> who's greatest disciple and all that stuff. We know that they, there's some kind of there's a boyish competition there? Maybe they argued about who should be doing it. We don't know, um, or maybe they just were like every other uh, disciple ever before and since who is faced with the inadequacies of, of basically not having all the answers and not being able to do everything they want to do. Um, we'll only ever be. I do. I do really. Uh, disagree with this sort of school of thought that is basically we can be just as great as Jesus and essentially as long as we you know, have the right theology, we have the right amount of faith, we step out, we can just do everything Jesus did. I just, I just think we'll only ever be a pale imitation of Jesus. We'll only ever be a pale imitation of Saviour. We're never going to be Him. And we are, we are agents of His grace and His kingdom. We are given authority. We are given gifts to use. We are, we are asked to step out in boldness. We do have the spirit, but we're only ever going to be a pale imitation of Jesus, in my opinion. So whatever the reason, this can, we can it teaches us stuff about prayer, or at least gives us questions about prayer, doesn't it? And some of the things I thought, geez, God isn't some kind of vending machine where you just, as long as you put something in, you get something out. It's not like a transaction happens where you say, well, God, if I do this for you, you need to do this for me. God doesn't work like that in my experience. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't give you some wish Jesus just gave us some magic formula, said if you just do this every time, it'll work. But he doesn't. The very fact that he does things differently every time he prays and heals people shows that we can't just click our fingers on and recant some kind of phrase that's going to work. I wish it did happen, but it doesn't. And he's not just kind of some sugar daddy type Character who just responds to our every whim. Like, if, I just, if I just really want it enough, or Daddy, you'll give me what I want, or you know, if I stamp my feet hard enough, then God will really, you know, he's not, it he doesn't work like that. Um, often we don't get what we pray for, and we don't know why. All I can say is that he knows what's best. And again, my father and I used to say this in his Abedonian accent, he used to say, God is sovereign and he can, he can do fit he likes. And that's what he used to say. He was like, that's not very satisfying. Like God can do what he likes, but why was not he, he answer this prayer? Why would he not answer this prayer? We don't know sometimes. And that's all I can offer you this morning is that it's probably what you already know. All, out, all he asks us to do is trust in him, doesn't he? He asks for faith. And I, faith as small as a mustard seed. And I'm sure in this place between us, we have faith as small as a mustard seed. Um, but we don't have all the answers. So I could talk all day, but I'm not going to, um, thankfully. So I want to know what you guys are thinking. Maybe you can shed some more light on this passage. Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you've got things that really stuck out to you. Who wants to kick us off? I'm going to bring the microphone around just so that it can be recorded on the, on the sermon. He's got a thought. Arthur's got a thought. Cheers, Natalie. Yeah, I think that that bit at
1: the end was really helpful, Ian, because it is a struggle to deal with that section, but I think you've done that really well. Um, And I read a book recently um, by Dr. Martyn jones about revival, and he makes a big deal of this particular phrase, Mm -hmm. much in line with what you're saying, really. What, What he's basically saying is this kind that's what Jesus said, mm. this, this kind of situation, this yeah. kind of opposition. And, and I think it's, it ties in with the feeling that we had at the beginning when, some, when we were praying about revival and sending the fire. And, mm. you know, it doesn't happen until we reach a point where we are saying to ourselves, this situation we can't deal with.
2: Mm.
1: You know, we've been dealing with so much. We've got so many activities going on. We're doing lots of stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's all good stuff. Yeah, but we but we now sense that we need something else. We need yes. something extra. Mm. This kind can only be dealt with by prayer. Yeah. So I found that really yeah. helpful. Yeah.
0: yeah. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah. Anyone else? <laughs>
3: I have thought a lot lot about this phrase about only prayer will uh, will work, and the the only insight I come up with is I think prayer is ends up about being about relationship, and I think Jesus is saying that it's only in our relationship with Him Mm. that uh, this begins to work, Mm. and that. uh, the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus, causes this conflict between the two kingdoms, mm. and it's a relationship which brings causes the presence of Jesus to the Holy Spirit to be there, and it's that is the um, the catalyst, the driving force mm. that creates this um, conflict, and hence the the opposition flees. So I I believe for myself at the moment that that's the key relationship.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, definitely. Definitely would uh, agree with that. It echoes what we said and we've sung this morning, isn't it? It's about relationship. It's not about some transaction uh, between some passive deity and his minions. It's about a relationship with the King of Glory, isn't it? Anyone else? Anyone else got any other thoughts to share? Questions or... Yeah, Annie.
4: Um, From what I understand about dealing with demons, I'm imagining in this case, this was a particularly tenacious demon. And that maybe there are graded responses according to the type of demon that you're dealing with. So it depends on... Very much on discernment, and it may be that the disciples weren't particularly discerning and didn't have the experience of dealing with this type of ministry and it is a, it is a ministry isn't it mm. um, uh, now i've forgotten where this is going <laughs> he talks he talks about later on in the Gospels the strong man binding the strong man mm. as though there is a hierarchy. Mm. So some demons might be mini demons, easy to deal with, go, don't come back. And if you're dealing with one that has a deep-seated possession of uh, a soul for whatever reason, you're talking about a protracted type of exorcism that you need a certain amount of skill and spiritual experience to tackle that only Jesus in this situation had. Um, That is currently my understanding of deliverance, that not all demons manifest in the same way, that discernment is crucial, and, yeah, that there's a procedure almost to follow.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm uneasy about that because that goes back into the territory of it's about us again. But at the same time, God has gifted people with specific gifts, mm. hasn't he? Mm. So the, the Bible, the Manitia talks about some people have the gift of healing, some people have the yeah. gift of yeah. So there's a clearly certain individuals, uh, God has, has appointed them to do certain things. Mm. And maybe, maybe exercising demons is one of them. Mm. Um, um, and <clears throat> just always, I think I always take some of that with pinch sort of salt that anybody can pray for anything and because it's not about us, it's about God. So mm. anybody can pray for healing, whether you've got the gift of healing in comes commas or not. But it's clearly that God gifts the church for specific ministries, doesn't he? And therefore, I hold those two things in tension. And I'm always wary of people that say, well, just, just you've not prayed in the right way, or you, know, not, just, you just obviously didn't have quite have the gift, or you know." but mm. it's that tension, I think. Mm. Yeah, why,
4: yeah. could that be why he asked how long has he been like
0: this mm. yeah.
4: to see how you know for mm. what Hans just said mm. he asked that specific question yeah. how long
0: yeah.
4: has this been going on
0: so what, what, do, you, what do you conclude from that if he, why do you think he asked that
4: well, because he wanted to know how deep-seated it yeah. was, how long it'd yeah. been, how long the demon had been attacking him. Yeah. And apparently it had been since childhood. So it, yeah. well, it was a long while, wasn't it? It was a long time.
0: But does, do you think that made any difference to whether Jesus could do it?
4: Well, Jesus could do it anyway.
0: Yeah, definitely. <coughs> That's the difficult because we're, we're always looking at Jesus saying, oh, what does that mean for us? But we're not Jesus, are we? So no. No. It, in a way, you think, I, like I said, it shouldn't make any difference, should it? Whether he's had it all his life or whether it was, he had it last week. Explain
5: why the disciples couldn't. But it yes, could just Exactly. Why the disciples exactly. Couldn't. Mm, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Can we tell He had his Can I just add that? Um, it made me think about if Jesus is asking, How long has he been like this? It makes me think, Did the disciples even ask the question? Because many times we can go into kind of like autopilot, whether it's complacency or what, and think, Right, well, it's just this or it's just that. But actually, Jesus always wants to get to the root of whatever the issue is and that takes discernment, that mm-hmm. takes a process, and sometimes we have to be willing to go through that process and not just go after something instant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe
0: yeah, that's and go there, true, and it? get into the trying to go
2: to the root of problems. Do some Thanks. I thought long and hard about this one. Um it only comes out by prayer. And uh, I, I thought about the disciples, and at the time in Judaism, prayers were a sort of a mechanical thing in any event, that they prayed sort of at certain times and with, almost like in Islam today, the way that they have certain times and certain prayers which are repeated. But if you think about today, what, what is prayer? It is bringing things to the attention of God. And in effect, that's what happened. They brought this to the attention of Jesus, which is technically prayer. And of course, previously they, I think I agree also with what you said about uh, sort of uh, different demons and uh, some would know that these uh, disciples had the authority of Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, but the authority of Jesus. And they could, uh, at the the mention they would go. But the ones deep seated, um, that required direct intervention with God and they brought it to God's Mm -hmm. attention. And that is in fact prayer. Mm -hmm.
5: Mine's just a silly observation, really. Um, the fact that this is a deaf and dumb spirit um, renders the the person deaf and dumb, but it can actually hear. You know, so while the boy couldn't, the the spirit could uh, and could respond. I just it was just an interesting sort of thought that popped into my head. <laughs> yeah. I might collapse halfway through, but um this uh, before the service we've, we were having a song uh, by dave bryant at the memorial service and before the service i was talking to um ian and saying where it come from and i was just thinking back in the nineteen eight by 83 i was having some ministry for my church was all into ministry and and going back to your past and laying you out and what have you and um I'd had a session with two of our people, and they'd got me halfway through and left me a wreck, basically. Um, which really annoyed Snoop, but I was just couldn't be bothered. Um, and about two or three weeks later, we had Dave Bryant came, who um, has a, a, got some famous songs, which I can't remember at the moment. And we had an, there was a men's night, and all that happened was he came, he went through his album, sang the songs, and um, and spoke. And just peacefully, God came and did the, finished it off in an amazing way. And I was just thinking, and that in a sense is the same as you, the other boy, where there was two people who had an attempt. And I'm just wondering, does this one only come out in prayer? It means that you're actually praying to start with, to think, what well, actually do we need to do in this situation rather than dive in? And perhaps we need to think a bit first before we think, how can we sort of help this person through this process? Praying, well, the prayer is: which, what step do we take?
2: Is it maybe to do with human willpower that sometimes, that when we're praying or wanting something, that we can exert our own willpower and not rely on God's will? So that what it's saying is, it only comes out by prayer is to hand it over to God and let Him do Rather the work rather than exert uh, our own power. Yeah, I think, that
0: is, I think that is a danger when we pray, isn't it? That's always a danger. It's, prayers are one of those things. It's a sim- the mechanics of prayer is really simple, isn't it? Yes. Speak to God. But actually, it's when you peel the layers back, there's so many things that prayer is and isn't, and so many ways that you know how to choose, you can come to it. And if you just come like, it's, it's basically if I just say, I want this enough, and say God in and, and Jesus' name and at the end, am I really praying? For You know, well, back to... What Paul said is it's not relationship, is it? It's not coming to God who is able to do more than we can imagine. It's just willing and hoping, isn't it? It's just like a hope, but put God's name in it. So I think you're right. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for your responses there, guys. I think uh, I love the, I love when we do this. We I mean, don't do it every, every week, but and O'Neill does it every now and again. And I just think together we can we can learn things together, can't we? That we can't just get from one person we're a priesthood of believers and while some people are gifted with the gift of preaching i don't think i am one of them um neil clearly is the between us you've drawn out we've drawn out more things than we would have done had it just been from from one person from the front so thanks so much for, for doing that so we're going to respond now and uh think we're going to take communion if that's okay least, yeah